particularly for penguins, like emperor penguins, you know, they breed in winter in the Antarctic where the temperature gets down to minus 70 and there's enormous wind chill. And so they survive by huddling together and, and that keeps them warm. And so they always, if they see other emperor penguins, they will go and investigate them and then they get together. Mm. So if you think about it, we don't look that different mm. in a featureless landscape from an emperor penguin. So I've, you know, several times been like in a place where I'm by myself and emperor penguins will see you and then they'll trumpet call to you and then they'll walk over to you and they'll check you out. And then if you go for a wander, they'll follow you along. Hello and welcome to Asking for a Mate, the feel-good podcast that asks guys to go beyond the small talk. This is a podcast that celebrates guys talking frankly and freely about subjects they usually wouldn't talk about. I'm your host, Cecile, and each episode I get the chance to ask Aussie guys what's really going on beneath their thick skin in the hope that it will inspire others to do the same. This week, we'll be chatting to Rob about climate change, marine biology, but also how Australia is dealing with the global emergency. So Rob, also known as Professor Robert Harcourt, has been a marine biologist for 36 years. He has worked all around the globe and survived 11 expeditions to Antarctica, where he almost got stranded when COVID hit last year. Rob is a teacher at Macquarie University, a mat surfer, and obviously an ocean lover. Rob, welcome to Asking for a Mate. Hi, Cece. Lovely to be here. In the interest, say, that is usually what people don't talk about. I feel like you've done a hundred plus interviews about that topic, but it's still important, I think, to go beyond a small talk about this and maybe for some of the people listening that might not be comfortable sometimes having those conversations. And I'm really excited to have you because we met quite a few years ago now and when I launched that podcast I kind of kept in the back of my head that one day I will have you on the show so I'm very very glad that you're here today. I'm flattered. And also because it is Earth Day and I think it was a great time to have you on the show. There's been lots going on in the media, uh, in the politics as well, in Australia and abroad that kind of makes it a bit of a perfect timing for me to be talking to you. Uh, but also, I think we could uh, maybe get a bit of an intro around what you do, where you've been, and what's been the journey like. Sure. Being a marine biologist for 36 years. Yeah. Well, I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was five. Really? When I was a little boy, we went on a holiday to Malta. We'd moved to England for a few years. And the girl next door was like a mature woman. She was six. <laughs> and she taught me how to snorkel. And I looked put my head under the water and there was this whole new world I'd never seen before and I fell madly in love with it. So really I've been a marine biologist for a lot longer than 36 years because I'm quite old. No. But um, anyway, so, you know, I, I went to went to uni and I studied really hard and I went overseas to do my PhD and I was just really lucky. I got sent off to live in Peru in a seal colony or a guanera, so a bird ship mine for two years where I studied fur seals in the natural environment and saw amazing things. You know, killer whales would come in and, and catch puppies and all sorts of things. And um, But also one of the really important things about where I was living is that it's affected by El Nino in a big way. Yeah. And that really makes a lot of the seals 
staff and also all the seabirds that lived in the place that mm. I was. A lot of them died too. So that really dramatically affected how I look at the natural world. You know, it showed the importance of, of the environment on, on wildlife. Yeah. And, of course, that's been exacerbated by climate change. So it's been a really important focus of all of my research ever since, trying to look at how changes in the environment affect how successful animals are living there. And, of course, we're changing things really rapidly. So that's been pushing us to, and me in particular, but also all the people I work with to, to try and actually see how we can resolve this. And we're not doing a very good job. No, sadly. no, I don't think so, yeah. So living in Peru... That was the first Peru for two years, and yeah. then I went back to England, and then I went and I taught a course in Mexico. So I lived in, I ran a marine mammal lab in Baja California, which was amazing. We had whale sharks and manta rays as boating hazards when we were out doing dolphin and whale surveys, and we worked on a little island called Los Eslotes, which is near La Paz, and it's just beautiful, clear water, full of sea lions, and did a little bit of work on the sea lions. So I was there for about eight or nine months, and. Oh, just having a fantastic time. And then I went back and I went and lived in the US for a little while in Friday Harbour, which is on the West Coast where we'd wrestle giant octopuses and all sorts of stuff. Oh, it was wow. a real, it's amazing, amazing place. Killer whales yeah. come right into shore there. And if you wanted to go for a coffee, the lab just had rowboats and you could just row into town to go get a coffee and harbour seals and bald eagles would sort of follow you around as you're going. Just beautiful, amazing place. You know, you'd open up the door in the morning, there'd be a white-tailed deer eating grass on your doorstep. Fantastic spot. Um, and then I went back to and lived in Scotland for a while and then I got a job in New Zealand yeah. and that's where I finally got to go to the Antarctic because I'd always wanted to go down to, you know, to the land of the ice and, yeah. and particularly with, I've, you know, I've loved seals since I was a little boy as well and we went and we worked on seals and penguins down there and, you know, once you go, once, if you can, you want to go back. Well, people either want to go back a lot or they never want to go back because it is cold. Yeah. And it can be pretty harsh, but it's absolutely stunning. Yeah. Right? And you see things that you can't see anywhere else. Just the the clarity and beauty of the light in the evenings. You know, it's, it doesn't get dark in summer. It's 24-hour daylight. Yeah. But it still gets different shades and you get this beautiful purple deep sun yeah. disguised full of ice crystals and stuff. And, you know, you're chased by leopard seals and, you know, have emperor penguins follow you around like you're a super penguin. It's It's not bad. So I forgot to mention before you started talking that I'm obsessed with penguins, dolphins in general, and basically a lot of different like animals in the seas. But back like on your original story, how was it or how is it living in Antarctica? Because how long do you usually go for? Oh, it's really variable because we go down to do a job. Yeah. And so some of the projects we did oh, – about 20 years ago, we'd go for three months. So not that long, but long enough. And But there we'd be camping. So we'd be living in tents out on the sea ice. So we'd go out, set up camp, and we were tracking seals under the water during the breeding season. So these are Weddell seals. They have the most amazing calls. They have 34 different calls. One of them sounds like the Doctor Who theme music. They're just amazing. But the this is the males they're singing as part of advertising how good they are to the mm. females during the breeding season. But we're leave it, literally living on the ice. We're sleeping on it. It's about a metre and a half to two metres thick. And the sounds come up through the ice. So when you go to bed in your tent, you actually feel the calls of the seals coming up through the ice. Wow. Um, it's cold. Like we yeah. don't have any heaters. You're living in a tent 
So the ambient temperature can be as not it's not that cold. I mean minus twenty. Um, it's not that cold. Minus twenty. Great. Yeah, okay. It can be colder with the wind. Like we had we had minus thirty five a few times with wind chill, and I remember one time we went down and like at the beginning of the season when you first go out. You feel cold because you've just got there and your body hasn't changed. But yeah. your body changes pretty fast okay. to the cold. It takes two or three days of sleeping in the tent. So you're first sleeping in your tent and you're cold, but after a couple of days you're actually fine. And I remember lying in Subby Shept with two people in a tent. They're just they're quite like a, like a pyramid tent, just like Scott of the Antarctica. They haven't really changed at all. They're mm. pretty effective. Anyway, we're lying there and I'm talking to my mate and – Every time we breathed out, the air would freeze and then f- turn to ice crystals and fall back on our face. And it was really, really cold. Like uh, we're inside four sleeping bags and we had long underwear and thick socks and everything and it's freezing. <laughs> and I'm saying to my mate, maybe we should work in the tropics. And he's going, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. you know? But we don't. We still work down there because it's, it's so nice. But um, And sometimes the seals will come and lie against the tent so they're actually lying next to you. And they still call when they're on the land because they're – you know, they're on the on the ice, they're resting. So they're sleeping. So they're sleeping snuggled up against you in your in your in your side inside the tent, in your sleeping bag, and they're just lying against it. And they're big. They're like four hundred kilos. They're a big, big fat animal. So you've got a four hundred kilo seal lying there, snoring next to you as you're snoring. Yeah, it's pretty. It's it's beautiful. And we're we slept, we're working under Erebus. So Erebus is an active volcano. So it's okay. a huge, huge mountain covered in ice right next to you, and it's always smoking. Um, and every now and then emperor penguins would walk into camp and have a check you out and then wander yeah. off or a daily penguins. So the, the, those animals are actually not really scared of you, are they? Well, they've, the thing is they've never had predators on land. Okay. So they've just not learned to have any fear. And for particularly for penguins, like emperor penguins, you know, they breed in winter in the Antarctic where the temperature gets down to minus 70 and there's enormous wind chill. And so they survive by huddling together and, and that keeps them warm. And so they always, if they see other emperor penguins, they will go and investigate them and then they get together. Mm. So if you think about it, we don't look that different mm-hmm. in a featureless landscape from an emperor penguin. So I've, you know, several times been like in a place where I'm by myself and emperor penguins will see you and then they'll trump a call to you and then they'll walk over to you and they'll check you out. And then if you go for a wander, they'll follow you along. Because they're all, I mean, they're basically, that's what they do. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'll show you after the podcast yeah. a video of some of them coming from like 200 meters away just to come and check and you out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah oh, they're fantastic. That must be such an amazing experience. Yeah. And they're wild and they've yeah. probably never seen a human before. Yeah. You know, and they're not scared of you at all. Yeah. You know, That's absolutely amazing. So one of the questions I had is obviously starting with the positive, but what's the best part of your job? And with 36 years of experience, I'm probably sure that it's very hard to distill it, but... You know? Yeah, I think the best part of the job is actually knowing that some of the things we're doing is helping to make some of the things that humans have done to the to the world yeah. better. So we're stopping some things that are causing a decline in environmental, de- you know, the increase in environmental yeah. degradation. But personally, it's interesting with the animals. I mean, you get, you know, like, you know, I, I, I lived in a silk colony for two years in Peru by myself. You know, and by so yourself, by myself, living off the sea, and just um, and we'd have people would come in periodically, but most of the time I was all by myself. And so you're with the animals, and you know you form interactions with them. You know they become a very important part of your your whole mental health, your status, yeah. you know, how you how you feel about the world. You know, wake up in the morning with, with 
the sun and you go out and you spend all day with the animals and you come back in the dark and you go to sleep because it's dark. Yeah, no, like we had no electricity. I'd just read by candlelight and then go to sleep. And I'd go fishing, like I'd go snorkeling at lunchtime to catch crabs and sea urchins and things to eat. So you're pretty much living as another wild animal. Yes. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I can't even imagine what it would be like. And especially coming out of this and re-entering. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, and you're too young to remember, but there used to be a Cold War, so between the Soviet Union and the US. Yes. So when I went to Peru in yeah. 1987, yep. the Cold War was still going on. Still going on, yeah. And then the Berlin Wall and all of that Come happened out, while yeah. I was away mm. living in the civil steel colony. And I came back into the West having just lived quite remotely. Yeah. And the whole world had changed uh, completely. The geopolitics had completely yeah, changed. Completely. But personally, it was as if nothing different had occurred. It was more like I saw people and they said, oh, I haven't seen you for a while. I was like, no, because I've been living in those other world and it's little bird shit mine yeah. for the last two years, yeah. you know, not thinking about all the things that people are possessed about because you just you become more. It's actually fantastic to, to be away like that in the wilderness. You just you calm right down. You just, you're living day to day rather than thinking about all these esoteric things that we have in the modern world mm-hmm. that don't really actually do too much. I mean, they happen and they talk, but they happen around us, but we get, we get you know, sort of inflicted with that upon us. But, yeah. you know, it's very hard to avoid. But if you're away from it all, you don't even notice that the little things become important. You know, have I got sea urchins to eat? To you know, eat. To, yeah. Am I going to survive on yeah. food? Well, not so much survive. I was never in, never, it was never that I was going to start, but it's like, are you going to have something really boring? Like to a eat? treat, yeah. yeah. Or like, are you going to treat yourself with yeah. a bit of a sea urchin? Uh, have I still delicious. got limes and chilies? Yeah. Oh. Important things. Oh, that sounds delicious. So, I mean, obviously, that sounds amazing but you've already touched on this is seeing the impact that we have on the environment and probably hearing some people, you know, not being that aware of it or wanted to actually do something. Is that then the worst part of the, your job or is there something else that is? Oh, well, no, the worst part of the job is administration, but um, beyond that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, one of the really, frustrating things about about doing science of the environment is that we've been we've established very clearly what the mechanisms are that are causing a lot of harm to the world and we've been producing really good data that is showing the changes that are occurring and then you get people who either through choice or through lack of information and I can't actually give much credibility to that because the information is out there. Say, oh, well, I don't believe in climate change. And my response to that is, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe because it's what's happening. And a belief system is no way to actually act rationally. A belief system is something which you might need for your spiritual well-being, but it's not a good way to make decisions about how we protect the world. And we have in this country a government that has dismally failed to respond to um, you know, the impacts that we're making anthropogenically. It's, it's very disappointing to see, you know, the party that has governed us for most of the last you know, 50 years moving from actually a small C conservative, actually quite pro-environmental stance to the government that we've had for the last 20 years, I guess, 
with some exceptions, that's very much um, in denial of, of, of what we're doing and is actually putting in place or refusing to put in place policies that can actually address major problems that we are profiting from. I mean, that's the thing the government, no, the, the, the nation has made a lot of money out of doing things which will ultimately cost us a lot more, but in the short term and in the long term. And so it's, a, it's really, that's really frustrating. Yeah. How has seeing all those changes happen on the environment and the behaviour of people or even, you know, government, how has it affected your mental health, you think? Oh, it's made me really grumpy, yeah. <laughs> you know. I mean, I've, I do find that I can get really quite angry when I hear particular members of our federal government saying things which I know they know are wrong mm. and they say them anyway and where they prepare to sacrifice the good of the nation as a whole to win a few marginal seats over for jobs which are going to disappear anyway. And this government has been, it's, it's cr often cruel, you know, it holds children in, kept, you know, in captivity on Christmas Island for years because they haven't got the right visa status, I mean, for God's sake. Um, but also, the, you know, the, the, the big problems is that they're prepared to sacrifice our environment. And they really just, they paid lip service to actually anything to do with climate. And I'm, I'm hoping this will change now because the US government has changed. It's incredibly proactive, far more than we actually expected. I mean, Joe Biden is doing really amazing good things. And, you know, one of the things that we... And the British are too. And the British is a conservative government, for mm -hmm. God's sake, you know. Um, and we have in the state a really good environment minister, New South Wales Environment Minister, Matt Keane, is fantastic. He's actually leading the charge to try and you know, counteract what the federal government are doing. Mm. And he's uh, from the same party. That's the really frustrating thing. There are really intelligent people who know what's going on and they refuse to listen to them. And I'm not really sure why. Mm. I mean, I know it's to, because all they're interested in getting reelected, but there's something deeper than that. There's something fundamentally deeper, which I don't comprehend. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you is um, having lived in Australia for 10 years uh, almost and you know, it's just absolutely stunning, the, the environment here. Everything that you get to see from the Great Barrier Reef to, you know, desert and Uluru and, I mean, everywhere, everywhere you look is just absolutely stunning. Even where we live, Bondi, like, it's just incredible. We're so lucky. And I was, I was really saddened by when I lived, when I moved here, hearing some of the theories or thinking that people had here around, you know, coal and mining and, and, the fact that climate change was not too big of a deal and let's focus on mining. And I was like, why? Why is that so? And ever since I moved here and started to hear those, I've been trying to dig deeper to understand, like, why? Why is Australia it's like this? a great this? metaphor, digging deeper D into it. Exactly. <laughs> let's stop digging in the earth. Let's dig, you know, just in our brains trying to understand. Is that cultural? It, like, No, I don't think it's cultural. I think it's, it's pretty much just... Uh, transactional. So we have a like, currently. I mean, we have we have. I think, and I'm I'm not a poli I'm not a political scientist. I'm a you know I work in in the ocean, but I do look at what's going on with the federal government quite a lot. And we inter I interact with the government. We do a lot of contracts for government, and I sit on a lot of um, panels that do environmental impact assessment, or we re we review those assessments. And one of the things that has I have found really 
difficult is I think that the conservative government that we have has been hijacked because it's essentially a marginal government. It has no buffer. If they lose one seat, they're out. Mm -hmm. It's that they're really very much held to account by the National Party, which is very pro-coal. And that's really a transactional thing. It's in order to be re-elected because the National Party offers nothing to the farmers, its traditional base. So they've moved to essentially supporting the mining industry Mm -hmm. because that gets them over the line because they push out this line, which is really poor. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with mining. Mm. It's what you mine and how you do it mm-hmm. that's important and what's done with the product. I mean, with if if we if we if if the government had embraced a move to electric vehicles and um, moving into renewable energies in a big way, there's a whole host of rare and important minerals that Australia mm-hmm. has vast quantities a lot of, of yeah. that would actually provide these people most of them, if not more, with different jobs, maybe not quite so lucrative or maybe more lucrative yeah. as these minerals become rare. Yeah. But we've failed to do that. We've failed to do that almost perversely, I think. I'm not. It's very difficult from an economic perspective to understand why you would do mm. that. So it's really short-term political gain is the only thing I can see that's allowed that yeah. to persist. And so we've the change in presidency in the US and... Uh, having a bit more focus on the environment and the fact that recently they had this summit where Biden pledged to reduce carbon emission by 50% by 2030. And like, it was interesting to see how the world basically viewed Australia. And now basically everyone is aware that Australia is really behind. And like, did you- We're holding things back. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Because know. everyone should be made accountable. Yeah. And I think the, the and this is a, I mean, it, I don't have any sympathy for Scott Morrison, but I do think he's in a very difficult place because he wants to keep his job Mm -hmm. and he has to satisfy all of the members of the coalition that he is the leader of. Mm -hmm. And some of them are adamant that we must not progress or all the lights will go off. And, um, you know, so he really... It has to walk a difficult. I mean, I, I, I suspect Scott Morrison will do whatever it needs to, to stay in, yeah. in power. Okay. He hasn't. He hasn't. Even though he's got these strong religious beliefs, he's not really ever been amazingly consistent in terms of, you know, wanting to look after the earth. You know, Australia now on the international stage is stands out because America has switched from being so far to the right under Trump and you know, trying to dismantle every environment, piece of environmental legislation mm-hmm. to now having, you know, Joe Biden coming in and being, showing, in fact, going further forward than the Europeans who had been leading the charge, really leading the charge yeah. for many, many yeah. years. Yeah, that's a little bit of piece of reassurance that I do find sometimes when I try to, like, feel a bit better about what's happening, being like, okay, at least, at least there's a big country. Yeah. And, and one of the other thing is, I mean, and this is where, and it, it's, it's one of those things where I sort of, it's ironic, but Australia is actually making a lot of gains towards reducing emissions okay. because Australians are actually early adopters of new technology, always have been. And we've got massive uptake of solar. Yeah. You know, and if we had the opportunity, we'd probably have massive uptake of electronic vehicles. You know, it's just. Waiting that we, for it? We've, well, we've got very few policies that actually support it's it unlike you. No, it's crazy. It's terrible. And there's no networks. And we should have a fantastic network. But. 
companies and state governments are actually making a lot of advances and the federal government is holding things back but, and they're promoting certain activities like the gas transition, which is essentially just another sort of furphy. You know, it's like let's hold things back a little bit longer and blind the pockets of our mates for a while longer because we live in a country that's still very much an old boys club. But, um, you know, there are we, – we actually are making quite good progress. Yeah in those things that are controlled by state yeah. governments and by, and by private industry. You know, I mean, private industry wants to have progressive um, climate change policies because they're going to be affected by it. I mean, the, you know, the, in- the insurance industries have known this for 30 years. It's like the scientists and the big companies have been trying to promote, or at least the, the non-coal mining big companies have been tr- trying to promote um, good, clear policies because it allows them to plan. Yeah, for what's happening and, you know, the, the impacts of climate change are, are already so large and they're just going to grow exponentially unless yeah. we do, unless we make drastic change. And, and we've seen it this year. Like I think the more, unfortunately, the more happened to Australia with, you know, the huge bushfires we had or huge flooding that we just had a few weeks back, pro- hopefully things will start changing a little bit and people will start acting a bit more. Hopefully. Well, you still get the people who say, oh, we've always had floods and fires, you know, just not on the same scale and the frequency. And and the other thing is like even like some of the people we talked to at Fluoro Friday would say, oh, it's really cold this summer, so what happened to climate change? It's not global warming. And you go, well, actually climate change means change. It means we get more extreme events and we are seeing more extreme events. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the data is not always there because it's an, it's an imperfect science, but it's a pretty damn good one. You know, the International Panel on Climate Change Report is probably the most rigorously reviewed scientific document ever created. Every time they do it, it goes through incredibly rigorous peer review and anything that doesn't hold up gets thrown out. Mm. So they're conservative in the scientific yeah. uh, you know, uh, viewpoint. And the findings have always come through showing actually our predictions are not as extreme as the data that's coming in is showing. So I run a, one of my jobs is I run a, a facility that does animal tracking um, in the Antarctic and we, we put um, small computers on seals that measure the conductivity, so the salinity and the temperature and the depth around the Southern Ocean and we're putting data into the large climate change models. And even over the course of that um, work, and we've only been doing that for like 12 years, We've seen changes in a lot of the the, the different um, dynamics of what's happening down south. Yeah, and the uh, measurement, you know, the measure the measurement of the program as a whole, uh, Australia's Ocean Observing Program is um, putting you know, really good empirical data into what's driving those models that the IPCC are using. Yeah. So there's no doubt that we've put a lot of energy into the ocean. The oceans are expanding as a result, and that then affects the whole world climate. Yeah. And, you know, that's going to continue. Even if we stopped emissions right now, we'd still, there's so much energy gone into the system, it's going to continue for some time. Yeah. But we need to try and slow it down as fast as we can. And on that point, um, that was also one of the the key part of the documentary that was released and talked about a lot recently, Seaspiracy, that was released by Netflix from the same producer of Cowspiracy. And... Um, from what I've read, both of them have been a little bit debunked, but I think one of the key messages was still saying that the oceans are heating up and probably destroying as a, as a result of resources. Um, did you did you watch this documentary? 
No, I haven't watched Seaspiracy. I have, however, heard a lot of heard a lot about it. Yeah. yeah. So and and Seaspiracy saying that the oceans are warming, absolutely true. Yeah. You know, the all the all the data is is that's coming in supports that. And, yeah. And actually, it's much faster than we would have hoped. I mean, we've we've done some modelling, looking at the distribution of things like bull sharks, which you know people who surf are concerned about, and. We've already shown that over the last decade, there's been an increase in the amount of time that they come south because bull sharks migrate from the waters around southern New South Wales, you know, in Sydney Harbour. They come down here every summer and then they go back up to far north Queensland and at different rates. And they breed in estuaries, you know, um, and the, the babies stay in the estuaries till they're about five or six years old and then they come out and they start moving up and down. And we've already shown an increase in the amount of time that the bull sharks are spending in the southern part of their distribution. And we predict that, you know, over the next 10 years, they're going to be here for even more like a, and we're talking big, big change in the amount of time. So, mm. you know, two months more that they'll be spending around Sydney and, yeah. and the uh, coasts and waters because the water's warmed up so much already. Yeah. And it's, and it's, that warming is continuing. Yeah. So there is no doubt that this warming is happening and it's changing where animals are going. And it's changing ecosystems in those areas. And so, you know, like there's a, a really good um, citizen science program um, called REDMAP where people record what fish they're catching where. And they've shown multiple species of fish that used to be only around mainland Australia have now crossed down into Tasmania mm -hmm. because the waters are so much warmer. Yeah. Same reason we're losing yeah. the kelp forest there. Yeah, exactly. You know. But other than that, Seaspiracy has been very controversial in in um, in my world and the reason for that is um it's been debunked for essentially often using data that's either out of date mm -hmm. very out of date or it's just wrong and there's also concerns that it's been driving a rather um racist line mm -hmm. rather anti-asian yeah and um one of the things that makes me very um, concerned that people are going to see it and think that that's what's ha happening is that the people I know who are real experts in the marine fisheries world, including those who have really driven conservation of marine resources more than almost anybody else in the world. So Daniel Powley, who's a, he's a, a professor at UBC in, in, in Vancouver, and he's, I mean, he's an incredibly... Um, an intelligent man who has spent decades, I mean, he's older than me, that's how old he is, <laughs> he's spent decades looking at what has is occurring in the marine environment, particularly in relation to fisheries. I mean, and it's seen by the fishing industry as being a very much a greenie, um, but a very intelligent greenie. And he has written a very clear... Um, point by point dismantling of a lot of what is said in Seaspiracy. And the, I'll give you just a couple of examples. I mean, one of them is um, they say that most of the plastic debris that we find in the oceans is from fishing, discarded fishing gear. And that was true 20 years ago. But there's been this incredible increase in the amount of terrestrial release of land source plastic in the oceans. So most of the plastics that are in the, found in the oceans now have come from land, they're not from the fishing industry. And it's really important for people to realise that 
if you're seeing something in a documentary, if it's out of date, mm-hmm. things could have changed a lot. And so you might focus, and this is why I have a, an issue with it, you might focus your interests on saying, okay, well, then we've got to stop fishing so we don't have this plastic debris killing animals. And plastics kill a lot of animals. You know, I've dissected um, uh, dolphins and things that have got plastics in their stomachs. It's horrible. Um, but things have changed and most of the plastics that we need to control, we need to control them at source, which is not having stop having them going to the ocean from land. Yeah. That's discards or plastic bottles and all those sorts of things. So there's a that's one example. But the other is really they really lay into a couple of people who are from developing world who work in um, the, in fisheries resources, but again are pushing hard to ensure sustainability of fisheries for people from developing countries who are not don't have the luxury of of changing what they do, but are being um, pummeled by external sources, including things like large ocean fishing fleets, which, you know, and there is a good argument for changing the way we do a lot of these large ocean yeah. fishing fleets, but that doesn't mean stopping fishing is going to, A, it's never going to happen, and B, you know, it's best to do it in the, in the the with the most um, long-term perspective supporting developing communities and in supporting the people in those countries and the sea spirit doesn't do that. It then yeah. actually turns it around and makes it it's pretty anti-Asian. Yeah. To be honest. And that's and that's bad. And 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 um the fact that Daniel has said this um is really very enlightening because um he's long been known to clash with the fishery scientists who are actually very pro fishing industry and if this is an uh, um exemplified by there was a tweet that came out from Ray Hilborn, who's a very much a pro-fishing industry, very intelligent scientist as well, and he's never agreed with anything Daniel said in the 30 years I've been in the same department, and he came out and said, I agree with absolutely everything he says in that dismantling of seaspiracy. Yeah. And in my world, that caused a huge, it was more 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 commotion about that than there was about the actual movie because mm. everyone's going, oh, my God, this is like, the, you know, the devil and the and God have just come together and said, we're going to do the same thing because we agree with each other. And then what's going, that's impossible. Yeah. But um, Wow. So what what do you think of the message that Seaspiracy has overall around like fishing, like eating fish or let's say like mass fishing is destroying our oceans? Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. I mean, I've done a lot of... Um, research with people who are working in the fishing industry. In fact, we do a lot of our work with 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 um, governments and with and a lot of that is to ensure that, that you know the fisheries are managed sustainably. Mm. And in fact, a lot of fisheries are very, very sustainable, particularly in Australia, we have a really good fisheries management for the most part. There are some forms of fishing that are need to be revised or removed, but not all fishing. So going uh, so not eating fish as a resource, I don't think it's an option for a lot of places, particularly yeah. in the developing world. And it's not so much saying let's stop fishing because then the world, the, the ocean will recover, it won't. We need to manage the oceans. I mean, we we manage every aspect of this world and we have impacts on the ocean that are far greater than fishing through things like warming, through now, through plastic. Terrestrial derived plastics are a huge problem. Apparently, uh, agribusiness as well has an impact on effluent, the ocean. Effluent in many yeah. areas, you know, and so we need to manage all those things. And and saying, well, if we stop fishing, the oceans will get better. That's just not true. But if we say 
we've got to always scrutinize all fisheries practices and in fact all practices that we do with anything to do with the environment to ensure that we don't cause damage and if we are causing damage how can we turn that around Mm. well then let's do that and let's put resources into that and let's ensure that the people who come from coastal communities whose whose only source of protein often is actually from the ocean can continue to maintain their communities and live in and live, you know, in with the with a living ocean resource that's actually maintained in perpetuity. And we to do that, we need to actually be smart rather yeah. than just how to having this single message, you know, uh, message: don't eat fish, and everything will be okay because yeah. it won't. Yeah. And 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 it, it's it is a problem if you say if we do that, everything will be good, because then people say, okay, well, let's do that, and they forget about all these other things that we actually really desperately need to do, like reducing plastic, like reducing plastics. To, yeah. Wholesale, and it's not a matter of just picking up. I mean, I do three from the sea every day, but you know that's almost irrelevant. But it, it's good to do, it's, yeah. It's, and it's and it's a good symbolism for others as well yeah. to say what we're trying to do. But we need to actually tackle it at source. Yeah. So that makes complete sense. And I had read some articles about conspiracy saying the same thing, but from a very personal point of view, and I know it probably is because I'm. Um, I should have been more aware of that. But when I heard, because I haven't had the guts to watch conspiracy, when I heard that they killed dolphins as bycatch, turtles, um, turtles and, and other sea animals that basically just die in the process of fishing, when I heard that, I was like, that is just killing me and I don't think that I could feel responsible for killing dolphins or turtles, for that matter of fact. And and one of the argument of the producer of the movie or the director of the movie was like, people should be informed as to what happens when you eat a fillet of salmon or something or a tuna, because no one knows that they're actually killing all of those animals in the process. So that's, mm, it's, there's, Absolutely true that there's bycatch. And I think one of the other problems with sea spiracy is that they confuse bycatch, which is catch that is not targeted, with um, discards, so non-targeted fish that are still caught, but then they're used. Mm. So one of the problems with their stats is that they confuse bycatch with um, discard. And it is true that uh, quite a few fisheries have and had and some still do have problems with bycatch and there's been a lot of work done for many years um, to reduce bycatch significantly. So, you know, when I was about your age, CC, <laughs> there was a massive problem in the eastern tropical Pacific where tuna boats would actually fish dolphin schools to catch the tuna because the dolphin schools at the surface and the, do- and the tuna underneath and they were eating the same prey. And they would use planes, spotter planes, to find dolphins and then they would just go and encircle them all, catch everything, throw the dead dolphins away and take the tuna. And that, but that was 30 years ago and that doesn't happen and hasn't happened for a long time now. Those sorts of practices were identified and it's absolutely true that they were hidden away. People didn't know they were going on. And when it came out, people were like horrified. But it still took a long time to get... That's those sort of fisheries shut down because they're international waters. Different countries are doing them. And so you can't just introduce legislation in one country to stop it. And consumer boycotts of, you know, the introduction of dolphin safe tuna was a really important part of that change in behaviour. So here in Australia, 
you know, we've worked um, with um, dolphins that were dying in, in, in some fisheries and we've got the fisheries changed so that they, those, those um, incidental bycatch of, of common dolphins that was happening in South Australia was drastically reduced um, from, you know, like they were probably killing a 1,000 dolphins a year, which from a conservation perspective is not really a problem. From an animal welfare perspective, it may well be, and from a personal perspective, it can be. It's very distressing. You know, um, so there are, but there are ways that you can reduce those sorts of things mm. a lot. Mm. You know, it's and often they're very simple ways, and it's really just a matter of um, trying to work hard to make sure those things a don't go on without people knowing about them, and b if they are going on, then you change things so that they don't. I mean, I think that's what we have to do. I mean, we have to realise that we have a lot of people on the earth and we consume a lot of protein. Mm -hmm. And so we're causing major impacts to animals, even without these direct ones that you were talking about, but indirectly. I mean, habitat loss is far, far greater, actually, than a lot of these other things. Five or six years ago, I watched a documentary around uh, the agribusiness and the impact of um, having farmed animal on land and on the environment and plus the... Animal welfare on top of it. So I strictly reduced my uh, red meat intake all the way to like not eating meat anymore. Um, And now I was like, okay, I'm left with fish and I'm still debating with myself, like how sustainable is it to still keep on eating fish? Then Cispiracy came out and I was like, that's it. I'm doomed. (laughs) I'm just going to stop. And you know how like avocado, what we're talking. And I'm like, just... We just can't get it right. I'm just going to go and buy a farm and just (laughs) grow everything myself. But then you're taking my habitat from wildlife. And one of the most frightening statistics that you'll ever hear is that only 4% of the world's biomass is wild now. Everything else is chickens and humans and cattle and sheep and pigs. That's so, not a very nice world to live in. No, we've and that's changed a lot over my lifetime. So we really need drastically to 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 stop land clearance. Yeah. And so and that's a real problem for um you know switching lifestyles as well because you yeah. need to look very carefully it's not just a matter of well i'm going to go vegan and completely. Then everything will be good completely yeah. no yeah. so on that note um changing habits and behaviors and thing uh, the way i kind of like sometimes talk about going vegetarian or being vegetarian it feels like at least in australia it's still seen as something not very masculine to become a vegetarian so one question i had for you is with Australia sometimes having, and especially in different pockets, being having really strong gender stereotypes, and we as a, as a society, especially quite a few years ago, associate masculinity a lot with eating red meat and being, you know, strong and having the iron intake and stuff. Like, how how do you think is this those gender stereotypes that we have affecting potential change or lack of change? Yeah, that's a really good. Question, Cece. I mean, there is quite a lot of evidence that there is an association between being a carnivore and a I'm a you know hunting, rooting, shooting type of guy, and being and 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 fragile masculinity. You know, um, I would hope that we'd move beyond that now. But again, you know, there's the urban latte drinking stereotype that our prime minister is fond of of. Um, you know, disparaging, and um, in fact, if you go out into rural Australia, and we do a lot, I do a lot of field work in, in you know remote coastal towns, and um, 
you know, you'll find that in fact that a lot of those stereotypes are breaking down. But slowly, I don't think you'll find so much disparagement of men becoming vegetarian. But I think you're right that in that our attitude to the environment has very much been driven by the the sort of um, traditional perspective on gender and other things which are associated with it. So being passionate about the environment is thought of as not something that men should do. You know, we should it's not be, very manly, is it? We should be driving our utes and shooting kangaroos. And But, I mean, and that's a stereotype in itself yeah. as well. And, you know, um, some of the people who are really very keen um, hunters and shooters are actually passionate environmentalists you know, as well. And so, I mean, we're, we're, we're a complex primate and we've, we do have, you know, different facets and in fact all of us do and you know i mean i'm i've i know during this podcast i've been quite disparaging of our prime minister but you know i'm sure somewhere there's something that he's done once maybe it wasn't <laughs> completely wrong and bad um you know so have you have you had in your experience the 36 years that you've seen because you probably have seen changed have you seen a or noticed a change in behavior towards you when you were saying that you're um you know my biologist Passionate about environment. Have you seen people's reaction being a bit judgmental sometimes about your masculinity? Has it changed? I don't know. I mean, I'm reasonably, you know, comfortable with my own masculinity, masculinity and sexuality and everything. Yeah. So, and I always have been. But um, I think when you say you're a marine biologist, most people say, oh, that's what I wanted to do when I was a child. <laughs> what? No, no <laughs> never heard of this before. Yeah. And, and so my response is, well, you know, obviously I have a lack of imagination because I'm still doing it. But, um, you know, I, I'm not sure because I think we have progressed in a lot of ways and it's not just to do with attitudes towards the environment. I mean, when I was a young boy many many years ago in south australia um there was a not only gender stereotyping but there was you know i mean a, you were by default homophobic you know there was no understanding of different sexualities um women were really thought of as the person who raised the children and um, like my mum was a early pioneer in politics and she sat for the upper house in South Australia and she was, I think, the first Labour woman to do, to do that. She didn't get in, but, um, you yeah, know, that was deemed quite quite unusual for a woman to be running for, um, for politics. And, um, you know, those sort of attitudes have changed dramatically, less so in one of our parties, but, uh, you know, we have more than, I think we have gender parity in the Labour Party in the federal, in the federal government. You know, no parity. I didn't say we have equality. I said we have parity. Um, and um, I think our attitudes, those sorts of attitudes have changed a lot. Not mm. everywhere, mm. but compared to what they were, you know, and look, I'm nearly 60, you know, 50 years ago, things were very, very different. Um, and nobody would even dare to question you know, government decisions about what mining companies are doing or anything like that. And at least people have moved a long way forward in that respect. Thank you so much, Rob, for your time, for sharing with us all your knowledge or some of your knowledge. I find that this was probably one of the most challenging, not challenging, but politically rooted conversation to have, but also just so many things linked, whether it is 
you know, culture. We talked about gender a little bit, obviously politics and the actions of a government. But I think like one of the things that we we could kind of take away from this conversation is the fact that nothing is um, on its own. Like everything is connected, whether it's all the countries together, whether it's, um, you know, the agribusiness, the ocean, how we act, plastic, fishing, everything basically, which is very, very complex thing, um, sometimes makes me anxious and I know that I'm not the only one there. So maybe just to finish, do you have a way to stay positive about? Oh, look, you know, we live in a very small world and we're not here very long. You know, like I've been around for more than half my life now. I know that. It doesn't feel very long. It's like yeah. we're here for just a snap of our fingers. But the world's changing a lot during that time. And the way to stay positive, I think, is we actually is embrace the fact that we live in an incredible world with amazing beauty. And if you want it to continue after you're gone, which I do, you know, then the way to stay positive is to think, well, if someone wants to look back at my life, would they say, well, because you were here, you left the world a better place when you're gone. And if you can say that to yourself honestly, then you're always going to be positive because you know that there's a reason that you're here. And and you make that reason. I don't think there's a God. I think you make that choice yourself. But if you can look back at your life and think, well, I've, I've made it a better place, not a worse place by my being here, then you're always going to be happy. I'm glad that we've got people like you helping, studying, proving that something needs to happen and leading the charge. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Cece. It's been fun. If you enjoyed this episode of Asking for a Mate, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And guys, please remember to always go beyond the small talk because it feels great to talk.